Hello. Welcome, everyone. So we're, tonight we're continuing with um, our Bible study on the spiritual disciplines. So this is session three. So uh, we're just going to pray really quickly before we start. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for the body of believers that are here tonight. And I just pray, oh God, that you would just speak something uh, personal to us, Lord. I pray that you would just convict our hearts, Lord Jesus. And uh, Lord, I pray, Lord, that as we are endeavor, Lord, in, in putting into practice these spiritual disciplines, Lord, I ask for grace, for empowerment. Lord, for uh, just an understanding of the need, oh God, that we have to, to train ourselves up for righteousness, Lord. So we just want to thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, last week, um, we went through uh, several di uh, disciplines. And so we uh, looked at the discipline of study. So that includes reading, listening, memorizing, uh, meditation, word study, context study. So we, we went, we elaborated on what it means to study the Word of God. Sometimes we have uh, expectations or misconceptions about what it is to study the Word of God, but it is, uh, it is to read His Word and to understand uh, with the context. And so we have several tools that we can use to do that, and uh, we're really blessed here too because we've we have been taught and uh, and encouraged to study the word together, and we also did the uh, the discipline of prayer. We explained what that meant. So, oh, I put two e's there, but it's how we talk to God and alone or collectively. We talked about fasting, and I really like that quote that fasting is feasting on God, hungering for Him alone. So it, it is to put aside something so that we can more fully focus on God, especially in this uh, generation where we're so uh, distracted by so many other things. So it is to take that time. And we talked about confession. So confession is an admission of sin followed by repentance. So confession isn't just admitting what is wrong. It is admitting what is wrong and turning away from it. So this week we're going to be talking about uh, four other disciplines. So the discipline of worship, fellowship, rest, and celebration. So the first uh, discipline, worship. So it, we're using the scripture in uh, 1 Chronicles 16, 29. It says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And so in order to understand what worship is, uh, they give the example of what the word or the where that word comes from. And it comes from the Saxon word I can't pronounce worthship, <laughs> and it evolved into worthship. So it's ascribing worth to someone. So sometimes we have this idea that worship is just about singing songs, and sometimes we actually come to church, we sing the songs, but we're just singing to sing the songs, and just out of act of tradition or out of habit. But worship is really attributing worth to someone. So and I just, I was thinking about, you know, just a, an example, just to kind of make it maybe more clear to us. So, so imagine if you go to a mechanic and you, like he does a superb job with your, your vehicle. And so you've, you've entrusted your vehicle to this man and he's done a really great job. 
then you will attribute him worth and, and saying, hey, I, if you meet someone who's having car problems, like, hey, I know a guy. This guy does such a... And so you will be giving him praise for his work. And so you're, you're attributing worth to what he is able to do. But with worship, it is more than just what God is able to do, but it is in who he is. So it is attributing him worth. So as much as you would praise this, you know, mechanic for, you know, like, man, you, you, you now trust him more and more. You're capable of entrusting him more and more with your vehicle because of the experience that you've had with him. Well, how much greater does our worship become when we experience God and we entrust God with more and more aspects of our life because God is the expert on everything in our life, isn't he? And so that's why we can attribute him worth. We can give him worship and praise. And where we get to learn of God's awesomeness and his greatness, I don't know, how, how many here have ever shopped on Amazon? I mean, we, I mean I'm a, I'm a you know, fervent Amazon shopper. And so now when I'm shopping on Amazon, I always look at the reviews before I entrust my money <laughs> to this company. And when I'm looking at the reviews, I look at how many stars they have, but then I start looking at the comment section and what they're saying about the, the product. See, now I can entrust, you know, the, the comment section of a, of a product in order to know if I can entrust my finances to a certain product or not. But the wonderful thing is that we have God's word that is faithful and true trustworthy word, more trustworthy than than Amazon reviews because they're not always trustworthy. But the wonderful thing is that we can trust in God. So even though we don't always haven't always experienced God in those areas of our life because we haven't entrusted him in those specific areas, we can trust his word. And that's why it's so important, you know, in collective worship and collective telling me, when you're, whenever you're telling of something that God has done in your life, you are giving him praise. You're attributing him the, the, the worth that he is due. So whenever you're giving testimony, it is an act of worship. Whenever you're giving your tithes, that means you're saying, God, I entrust you. I trust you so much that I'm, I'm, I have no issues giving you a part of my, my money because I know that you're going to take care care of me. So loving others also is an act of worship. So worship is more than just singing songs to God. It is entrusting him with our lives. It's giving all of us, uh, all of us who we are to him. And it is also giving him praise, you know, and hopefully our praises are better than Amazon reviews. And so, so, uh, Jesus is both the object and the example of our worship. When Satan tempted Jesus to worship him, Christ replied, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so what he was, Satan was coming to him says, You know, if you bow down, to, bow down to me, so if you entrust your future to me, I will give you this. And God's, Jesus said to Satan, You know, no, no, I'm not going to in give you any worth on your word, or I'm not going to entrust my life in your hands because you're not, you're not worthy of that trust. Only God is because it is written. He trusted in what was written. And so Jesus is our example. And so, but we are also, uh, we are also right to follow the example of the disciples who upon seeing the resurrected Jesus 
worshipped him in Matthew 28, 17. So in his humanity, Jesus is our example of how to worship. In his divinity, he is the object of our worship in Philippians 2, 6. It says this. So whether gathered together at church or alone in our rooms, uh, when we think about the greatness of God, we cannot help but worship him. So that's the discipline of worship. The next uh, discipline is the discipline of fellowship. So use the scripture in Acts 2, 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, uh, to the breaking of bread, and, and to prayer. So we tend to think of fellowship as a social activity, but it's more than just small talk. Fellowship is about being united with a body of believers, encouraging one another to follow Jesus. Now, there's some, th- some things that can impede or uh, disrupt fellowship or uh, make it difficult for us to connect or to bond with other fellow believers. And so I just, I was reading this article and it really, and he explains just, uh, this is, a pastor who is explaining, you know, that what he's experienced with fellowship and just the things that keep a fellow believers from really experiencing fully uh, what it means to fellowship. And so he explains it in five five reasons that fellowship eludes people. So one of the first re- reasons is indulging in fellowship fantasies. So sometimes we have a faulty expectation of what fellowship should be. And so we often create unrealistic, unbiblical expectations of what fellowship is, and then we try to fulfill those fellowship fantasies in the real world. We imagine what the perfect meeting or group looks like, sounds like, and acts like. We may even experience a temporary rush at finding what we describe as the perfect church, house church, or group fellowship. But when we are, uh, but then we are surprised and disappointed that, uh, to find that no one can live up to our idealistic. Uh, expectations and notions. So it's important to understand sometimes we're, we feel like, oh, well, I feel like I'm not getting enough fellowship. I feel like I'm not fellowshipping enough with my brothers and sisters. Well, sometimes it's because we have faulty expectations of what fellowship looks like. Anytime in any moment that we're having a conversation and we're in, exhorting each other, whether it's in, you know, in, in the church entrance right before we leave or, or, you know, before the service starts or during small groups in Bible study or when we meet each other at the store, those are all moments of fellowship. But sometimes we feel like it has to be in a certain context, you know, like, well, I feel like fellowship should be having people over at my house or fellowship should be, you know, we should have more or activities at church, you know, uh, or group activities, and that could would be considered as fellowship. But fellowship really is relationship. It is about those moments and enjoying the presence of your fellow believers as God calls us to enjoy His presence, to delight in His presence. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. Well, we are to delight in each other's presence as well, but also to to have that that rightful and truthful and loving relationship where we bring truth to one another. And that's what fellowship is. It's not in the quantity. It's not in the context. It is really in every moment that you uh, take, you, you delight in. And so there is, uh, I have a hard time with this, this one word. He says, chronic meeting, uh, meeting, 
Nidus. I don't know, he's trying to call it as a, as a disease. But this condition is contract, contracted through the years of attending church. Those who suffer from this can only phantom fellowship in the context of a meeting because that is the only context in which they have ever experienced it. So it's, again, it's that we have, okay, fellowship means like we have our fellowship, you know, uh, suppers, you know, or lunches at church, or it is in, a, in an organized activity by the church, or it is either in women's fellowship. But fellowship can extend beyond those uh, premises. Then number three, it says the done for me fellowship model. And so as a church, I mean, we have grown a lot from this, but there still comes sometimes some remnants. I know that sometimes even in my own personal life where we think the church is for us. (laughs) This is a variant of the typical fellowship fantasy, but sounds more spiritual. It's an idyllic notion of how things should be. Scriptures are produced to support an idea of how meetings and fellowship should be conducted. And this is used as a template to critique whatever group we're attending. Invariably, the group falls short of the New Testament model and disappoints, disappointment ensues. So it's, it's this criticizing, well, I think that things should have been done this way. And, this, you know, I think that it should look this way. And, you know, you, you analyze scripture to kind of pr- just promote that idea. Number four is self-destructive self-centeredness. Fellowship is based on relationship. Relationship is based on loving God and loving others. Since love is based on putting others first, self-centeredness is not compatible with fellowship. And I'm, I'm, we're all, you know, kind of uh, guilty of that where we, you know, we, we meet someone and we don't even ask how they're doing. We're like, we kind of are excited to, be, to tell them a little bit of, of story of what's happened to us lately. Where we're, or we'll divulge all of our problems to that person without actually kind of interacting with that person and, and taking that time to, to connect with them and say, how are you doing? How is your family? How are, you know, I, weren't you dealing with this issue? How is that going? But we automatically, you know, either don't bother to ask because we don't want to pry or we, you know, we just kind of blab on about our daily lives. And like I said, I'm, respo- I'm guilty of this as well. So this is a nutshell Uh, gets to the heart of the matter. He says, we spend years going to church to get our needs met. The service was for us. The sermon was for us. The music was for us. The pastor was for us. The fellowship was for us. Now we are looking for fellowship and the motivation still revolves around getting our needs met. We need fellowship. We need social interaction. We need other people. We need encouragement from like, Uh, minded believers and so we really haven't changed at all we are still consumed absorbed obsessed and infatuated with what we need and frustrated by what we don't have and so that can come and really frustrate and that's what i'm so excited you know about our direction as a church to make one of our services about others and it's not just a consumerism uh focused church and that's why you know we want to as a church want to do celebrate recovery that's why we encourage our members to volunteer at the food bank and to give of themselves where it's not just about us and it gives the example it says imagine if if you know, a ba- imagine a bank, and if everyone's always just making a withdrawal and no one's making a deposit, it'd be a pretty empty bank, right? It would empty out really quick. Well, if we're all like that, if we're all making withdrawals from people, just telling our stories and dumping on, on everyone and not, you know, showing love and care to others, then everyone becomes isolated and everyone feels 
left out. But if we all minister love to one another, take the time to show interest to one another, then we all become mutually taken care of. And that's, you know, that's God's heart. And really, at the end of it all, our number one need, because sometimes when we are need-driven, it's, it's because there's a need that not no one on this earth can really meet. You're trying, we try to get our personal need uh, met by people when that need was meant to be taken care of by God. When that need for affirmation, approval, the need for worth, no one can give you that sense of worth. If you're experiencing a lot of rejection, no, not a person on this world can heal your rejection. Only Jesus can do that. And reject that sense of rejection can often impede on our that that the flow of fellowship. And so it is a pivotal discipleship. And, and it is something that we need to approach with intention. It isn't something that we just kind of show up for. But God, you, you, when you arrive at church, and I'm, I've, you know, I've heard my brother Mark mention it often, you know, he arrives at church, God, who is it that you want me to talk to today? Who is it that you want me to approach? And I, like I said, I'm guilty of this too. Sometimes I'm like, I'm like, I got things to do, you know, like, but it is about, you know, connecting. And in Children's Church, we do this, you know, with our kids. We take, we take the first, you know, five, ten minutes of our Sunday school lesson is, how are you guys doing? How was your week? What are you guys uh, up to? And it's really creating that bond. And what it does is it creates an environment of safety. If you feel like people are kind of always running away from you and you feel like you kind of want to, why is it that they never want to hang out with me? Well, sometimes it is because, you know, they're, they're, you need to create that environment of safety with them. And need doesn't make uh, it safe when you're always trying to withdraw. And sometimes we're not aware of that. And I, I walk in and out of that as well. And so that's part of our, of our, our human nature. And so number five is dysfunctional relationships, which really, which really uh, kind of falls into that same category. It says the biggest reason why fellowship eludes us has to do with our own inability to understand what healthy relationships look like. And he gives the example of watching those Christian dating commercials, and he sees these women who are head over heels in love with the man of their dreams, gushing about what he does for them, how he makes them feel. And he says he's a little bit concerned about the future of any relationship that is based on on how the other person makes them feel. Why? Because there is a misconception that love is based on what the other person does for you or how they make you feel. This is not true love at all. That It is too self-centered to be genuine love. A relationship is not about what I can take from the relationship, but what I can give to the relationship. And so that's you know, we have this misconception about what love and relationship is. It's really about what God has called you. And you know that when you understand fully that you are a, that you are a gift, and you understand your worth, when you understand that you are a blessing and that God has created you to be a blessing and he has created you with a sp- specific gifts that are a blessing to others, and when you operate in those giftings that are giving to others, then you operate actually in your truest form of love. And so that's why God wants you to fully understand how loved you are. And if you're struggling with your, you know, connecting with God, that has to be your priority. If you're having a, a, an, a hard time with uh, a 
believing that God loves you or trusting in God's love for you or, or trusting him in, in those areas, that has to be our priority. If you need a subject for fasting, man, that is has to be our priority. We need to understand how loved we are for, by God and to believe the biblical reviews of who God is. And so those are just, I just felt like I needed to share because, you know, sometimes we we don't understand why is it that I'm struggling to fellowship. Well, sometimes we're struggling to connect with others because God is saying, I need to be first. Your fellowship with me needs to be first. And so and so to, to put into practice that dis- discipline, we first need to really walk in that full uh fellowship with with Christ and then the fellowship with others becomes easier but it has to be intentional so he says uh, so Jesus lived in constant fellowship with the father first and so he is our example even in this and also with his disciples but Jesus knew that fellowship would be challenging before he was arrested and crucified Jesus prayed for all believers So this is one of Jesus' prayers. He said, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So fellowship doesn't happen by accident. And so the writers of Hebrews said, let us consider to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So regular gatherings for fellowship require discipline. So sometimes we don't feel like coming to Bible study. We don't feel like coming to prayer. Well, those moments are pivotal, and they're, they enable us to grow together. And so uh, the seventh uh, discipline is rest. So the scripture is, uh, says, uh, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest in Matthew eleven twenty eight. So it says, Today... Uh, the spiritual discipline of rest requires more discipline than ever, especially with our, our, our technology. But TV and all these things that keep our minds busy and distracted, it is very difficult for us to rest in today's society. So we suffer from busyness, yet most spiritual discipline uh, books do not uh, include rest. It says, God instituted the discipline of rest in creation of the world. He created everything in six days and rested on the seventh. And taking that time to rest is also choosing to trust God. So as we give our tithes, uh, you know, a tenth of our money, and when we do that, we say, God, I'm going to trust you with the rest to take care of me in the rest. When it, whenever we ch- we're taking time, especially for us who are, have tendencies of being workaholics, um, it is taking that time to entrust the the affairs of this world into God's hand and because you know that actually for if you look at the parable of the sowers one thing that does choke up the word of God in your heart is the cares of this world and when we we choose to keep going without taking rest we let the cares of this world consume us to the point where we no longer God isn't Lord over all these things we're Lord and actually it's it becomes inefficient because when we become over fatigued we're less you know, effective, less functional, less loving, less caring towards others. And so it impacts us in very negative uh, ways. So it is important. And I, I know that sometimes it's not always possible to take a day of rest because things just happen. But it's consciously taking that time to rest, whether it's an evening, whether it's two evenings in the week, if you can't make it a day. It's just taking that time, God, I'm choosing to rest. I'm shutting off everything else, which is really difficult. I know even personally for me. 
to let the devices go and just to be quiet because it is in the quietness, in the rest. And I think that there was there's a scripture in I I think it's either in Isaiah or Jeremiah says that in in that we get confidence in Him in, in quietness and rest. And so when we quiet ourselves and we rest in Him, we choose say God, okay, I Lord, I I'm asking you to give me wisdom over all these things. And I'm going to choose to entrust those things in your hand. Then we get to experience him in greater measure. And often we're working a lot harder than we need to. And so God has all of that in, under control. And it is a measure of faith. Actually, it is the great, it's one of our greatest um, moments of experiencing faith. And uh, the areas where we experience the greatest unbelief. So the Bible warns us against overworking and not sleeping because sleep is a gift from God. He created us to need rest. Plus, the act of sleeping requires trust that God will protect us while we're unconscious. So, but rest is not God's desire for us in every moment. We must maintain a balance of when to work and when to rest. So Proverbs, there's so many scriptures in Proverbs that kind of warn against laziness. So God commands us to rest one day a week. The other six, we are to make, uh, we are, we're made to work hard. Uh, the, the, so Proverbs warns us against laziness in Proverbs 6, 9, 11. And so Jesus continued to observe the Sabbath, although he challenged cultural legalism, because you can't go into legalism, like I can only make certain amount of steps that day, you know. And that's what the rules were back then. And he's like, so he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath to worship and teach. And when he went to heal someone, they're like, hey, it's the Sabbath. You're not you're supposed to work. And he's like, are we going to neglect? Are we going to let people die? Are we going to let people lame because it's the Sabbath? Like, no. So he's, he would ask them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? So healing and helping people is not breaking the Sabbath. So even if you help someone move on a Saturday, no one's going to die. So rest is a spiritual discipline that we ought to practice at least once, uh, one day a week. We were designed to work hard and rest well. Therefore, Christians should work harder than anyone six days a week. We must discipline ourselves to get a healthy amount of sleep and to set a weekly day of rest. And that's kind of, for some of us, that's kind of hard going to bed early. Because, uh, you know, we just want to enjoy every little minute of the day. And then, you know, we borrow on the next. So, um, oh, oh yes. And the last, celebra- the last uh, discipline is celebration. And so sometimes, you know, we, we live in, in a performance-driven uh, um, society. And sometimes we're so focused on what needs to be done. And we're so focused on what we're not doing well that we forget what God has done. And so the scripture in Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. That reminds me of the songs. I always sing it in my head whenever I read it. Um, but the thing is, is that, you know, and he said it with such emphasis. He didn't just say, oh, rejoice. You know, it's a good thing to rejoice in the Lord. No, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And Paul had gone through like several difficulties, hardships, and he understood the importance of rejoicing. And rejoicing often equates gratefulness, thanking God for what he has done, thanking God for the sometimes the mundane things of life, you know, thanking God for, for health or for, you know, we've got a roof over our heads, a 
you know, we have a car to drive us places. We have food on the table. Those are all things that we need to be grateful for or even what God has done. Sometimes we're so focused on everything that we've done wrong in our relationship with God that we don't recognize the work that God has already done. Taking time to recognize the, the work that he has done, the relationships that he has restored, the friends that he has enabled you to have, the church body that he has set you in. When we celebrate those things, when we have fellowships on Sunday, those are the moments to, to celebrate the great things that God has done. So in celebration, we rejoice in God's many blessings and remember his faithfulness. So while too much celebration could become excessive, no celebration is also bad. So if we no, we don't celebrate, sometimes we kind of get discouraged and despondent. And that's why we need to remember the good things. So uh, Ecclesiastes 5, 18 to 19 says that it is good and fitting to eat and drink and enjoy the fruit of our labor and the money and possession that God has given us because this is the gift of God. So there's balance in all of that. And even Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 4 says, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So sometimes we're just so focused on, you know, okay, I've got to mourn. I've got to process through these things. There's a time for rejoicing as well. So Jesus modeled celebration. His first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding, endorsing the celebration and allow, allowing the party to continue. Jesus was also accused of being a glutton and drunkard because he ate and drank with the tax collector and sinners. He didn't get drunk, but he, he allowed himself to eat. <laughs> it's hard to believe that these were uh, not joyous meals because people seem to enjoy being in Christ's company. The key thing to remember in celebration is whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So celebration can erode into gluttony and drunkenness and a worship of sensual pleasures when it is separate from the purpose of bringing glory to God. So this fine line may be the reason celebration has been so misunderstood by many Christians. So today, while we must guard against gluttony and drunkenness, we are we are right to celebrate weddings, baptism, holidays, birthdays, promotions, raises, anniversaries, and other family and community gatherings. And the good things, you know, do you celebrate the good things that have happened in your life? You know, it's, it's, it's important to celebrate that things are going well, you know, the good things that happen. So, but what makes participation in all of these celebrations a spiritual discipline is remembering that we are rejoicing in God's good gifts. So, so it's, it's exciting to, to know that that's part of God's uh, disciplines for us is to rejoice um, in him. So we're going to be going into small groups, separating at one, two, three, four, five, six.